Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Owen O'Connor. He's the Chief Scientific Officer at TG Therapeutics. And we're going to talk about uh, their work. The website is tgtherapeutics.com. And uh, Owen O'Connor is an MD, PhD. He's an international authority on lymphoma and drug development. Has more than 25 years of experience in academic medicine. And it looks like he joined TG as the CSO in uh, May of 2020. So, Owen, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard, for having me. If you would, tell me about uh, you know TG Therapeutics. What's the premise of the company? Yep. So, uh, TG is a biotech company that started in uh, 2012 or so, had uh, five founders uh, led by uh, Mike Weiss, who's now the uh, present uh, CEO. And uh, the company started with uh, an ambition to target diseases related to underlying B-cell dysfunction, right? So those would include B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas and autoimmune diseases. As you know, there's a spectrum of a disease that's caused by dysregulation of B-cells. Uh, in one case, uh, in the malignant case, those B-cells are dividing wildly. And in the case of autoimmune diseases, they're just misbehaving. And so there's a rationale for thinking that drugs that target uh, B-cells not only could be used then to treat malignant uh, B-cell disorders, but also to treat uh, underlying autoimmune diseases. So that's sort of the fundamental uh, premise of the company. It started uh, with the acquisition of an anti-CD20, uh, now called Ublituximab, that was licensed from a company in France. And Ublituximab uh, had some pretty interesting features that uh, differentiated it favorably from other uh, CD20 assets uh, then uh, already available or being developed, uh, namely that it targeted a unique epitope on CD20 
It was a type 1 IgG, so it had good CDC capability. And uh, it was uh, glycoengineered or defucosylated, which uh, enhanced the ADCC, a very important feature of select anti-CD20 uh, monoclonal antibody. So that was the first okay. Can you restate that a little bit less technically? You know, not 100% layperson, but there's a little bit too many terms in there. Uh, Got it. Can you go over the mechanism of action a little bit yeah. more specifically? Yeah. So the first uh, molecule that uh, TG brought in was a monoclonal antibody targeting a uh, protein on the surface of B cells called CD20. And of course, CD20 has been a popular target for all sorts of therapies in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, but the first asset acquired by uh, TG was this anti-CD20 we now called ublutuximab. Uh, and it has a number of discrete features that render it uh, slightly more active against uh, B cells. And then the second molecule they acquired was from a company in India that had been working on uh, some structural relationships for PI3 kinase inhibitors. That molecule we now call umbrilisib, uh, and umbilisib is a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And those two drugs represent uh, the first two that the company acquired and began studying uh, very comprehensively. And then over the years, they have explored both their combination uh, and the acquisition of other assets to produce what is now a pretty impressive deep pipeline uh, that, uh, by all looks, uh, will complement well the anti-CD20-based therapy, as well as the PI3 kinase drug. So these are essentially immunotherapies for various cancers, lymphomas, right? Yeah. When, when, we, when we say immunotherapies, people may think about different things. So monoclonal antibodies, for sure, would be an immunotherapy. PI3 kinase inhibitors and other small molecules are not technically thought of as immunotherapies, but that's not to suggest that they don't have immunologic effects. They can affect the function of normal B and T cells, but the PI3 kinase inhibitor in this case might more uh, aptly be called a precision targeted drug or a small molecule distinct from uh, thinking about other types of immunotherapy. And what's the function of uh, B cells in the body for people that don't know? Yeah. So lymphocytes uh, are an important uh, kind of white blood cell. And when you think about white blood cells in the body, you can think about uh, what we refer to as myeloid cells. Myeloid cells come in typically three flavors, neutrophils, eosinophils, and basophils. And then the second category of white blood cells are called lymphocytes. And lymphocytes too come in at least three flavors, B cells, T cells, and NK cells. Under the category of lymphocytes, all of those different types of lymphocytes play different roles in the immune system. So T cells play a role in what we call cell-mediated immunity, and B cells play a role in what we call humoral immunity. So those are the cells that secrete all sorts of antibodies um, that your body uses to eliminate uh, various uh, infections and uh, sources of Infection. So they all play distinctly different, albeit very important, complementary roles in the immune system to uh, ward against uh, infection. So are some of the therapies what to amplify B cell activity or you know, how are they related? Exactly. So all malignant uh, diseases are derived from a normal cell in the body, right? So a breast cancer cell gives rise to breast cancer. And in the case of lymphoma, these are diseases derived from normal lymphocytes. 
So in the world of lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in particular, uh, these are malignancies that are derived from any of those three types of lymphocytes, B cells, T cells, or NK cells. And so the malignant cell is basically a derivative of the normal cell. And uh, in thinking about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, it's also important to think about the diversity because all those normal lymphocytes you have in your body, while we call them B cells or T cells, there's numerous, numerous subsets of many of those kinds of lymphocytes. And each one can give rise to its own distinct form of lymphoma, which accounts for the fact that there are now over 80 different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that are commonly recognized. So a very, very diverse and relatively rare group of diseases derived from normal uh, lymphocytes in the body. So what, when you augment the B cells or when you do these other inhibitors, uh, you know, what kind of cancer patients do they work in and at what stage and you know, yeah. what happens to them when these therapies are administered? Yeah. So in the case of B cell malignancies, these drugs are not designed to augment B cell function. In this case, because the malignant B cells are misbehaving, right? They're not dying or they're proliferating fast. The goal is to uh, A, inhibit their proliferation uh, and B, kill them. And of course, as you might imagine, which is the problem with all types of cancer therapies, is there's a narrow therapeutic window, right? Because you're trying to kill a malignant cell that's derived from the normal cell. And oftentimes the differences between the malignant cell and that normal cell can be few and far between. So it's a gentle line between uh, finding a drug that's going to be able to kill the malignant lymphocyte while sparing many of the normal white blood cells in a way that you don't produce excess toxicity. So these drugs, the two that I mentioned, the PI3 kinase inhibitor and the anti-CD20 are really designed to eradicate uh, those malignant cells from the body. In the case of autoimmune disorders, simply suppressing the activity of those B cells or suppressing the B cell interactions with other cells in the body like lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, can be enough to stop or treat an underlying autoimmune disorder. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So while both diseases are basically due to dysfunction of B cells, your approach to those two diseases can be subtly different. In the case of the malignant lymphomas, your goal is eradicate those lymphomas to you have no um, malignant cells in the body, you're trying to cure the patient, or in the case of indolent diseases, suppress those cells from growing. And in the case of autoimmune disorders, you're trying to suppress that abnormal B cell function that's producing uh, the underlying autoimmune disease. So how you treat it, the doses, the schedules of those drugs uh, are all can all be subtly uh, different because one has two different objectives depending on the disease. So these cancers that you're talking about, they affect some of the immune cells themselves. They affect B cells and corrupt them. 
And that's yeah. why you'd want to, uh, you know, to get rid of some of them. Exactly. So what happens is uh, a normal B lymphocyte in your body that uh, is happily producing antibody to help fight uh, the next uh, case of pneumonia you might be exposed to. That uh, B cell, for whatever reason, uh, it may have some uh, underlying genomic instability. Uh, it may be stimulated in various ways. It's known that certain infections can give rise to certain kinds of lymphomas. So certain infections of the stomach, like Heliobacter pylori, can give rise to marginal zone lymphoma in the stomach uh, through a biologic process we call antigen drive. But in those uh, particular cases, the goals of a therapy are really to eradicate those uh, B cells, um, and because they're they're bad B cells, right? Those are the cells that are just sort of growing uh, without any uh, control or restraint. So, how do you differentiate between healthy B cells and non-healthy ones? Do you look at you know surface antigens on on the uh, the B cells themselves, or what's different about them? Well, good question. Um, the first obvious uh, response is you look at uh, the patient. And uh, when patients have an underlying malignant lymphoma, they usually present uh, with uh, tumors, right? So usually those tumors are in the lymph nodes or in organs that are essentially lymph nodes like the spleen. So they can present with fairly large masses. It wouldn't be uncommon uh, to see a patient with Hodgkin's lymphoma have a, an 11 or 12 centimeter mass in their chest or for a patient with uh, a large cell lymphoma to have a 12 or 19 centimeter mass in their belly. And so the first point of differentiation is sort of at the very macroscopic level. Patients with these diseases will have enlarged lymph nodes. They could have these cells circulating in the blood uh, and or they may have an enlarged spleen. So all those organ systems in the body that we think of as predominantly lymphoid in nature uh, will become enlarged. When you biopsy those tissues, you can then uh, discriminate between the normal B cells and the malignant B cells uh, first by virtue of their morphology. The underlying uh, malignant B cells tend to be clonal, right? They all look alike. They're essentially uh, repeat images of each other. So the first thing one typically sees is a very monotonous layer of these uh, malignant B cells in the lymph node or that biopsy specimen. And then one can take a deeper dive looking at the proteins expressed on the surface and or certain genetic uh, abnormalities, uh, which are only characteristically found in the malignant disease. You know, seeing, uh, you know, in a dish is very different from biochemically, quote unquote, seeing. So in the body, if this is going to be in clinic, how will the treatment see, you know, the good cells from bad? How did it happen? That's, that is the $10 million question. And the, the principle that you're addressing there would be the therapeutic window. Uh, in the early days of chemotherapy, um, many people may know that uh, the origins of chemotherapy come from somewhat of a nefarious past, right? Agents of chemical warfare basically gave rise to the principles of chemotherapy and some modern-day chemotherapies. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And those treatments would basically target those cells in the body that are proliferating the most rapidly. So uh, a fundamental feature of any malignant cell is that it's going to proliferate. That proliferation rate is usually at a pace that's far greater than the proliferation rate of normal cells. 
So normal chemotherapy drugs or the the drugs that have been developed over the years are essentially targeting uh, the rapid rates of DNA replication. So DNA replication is not necessarily so unique to just tumor cells. Many cells in the body need to replicate like normal blood cells. And it's because many chemotherapies, in fact, target this sort of common uh, feature of all cells, say rapid DNA uh, proliferation or replication, it accounts for why those drugs kill not only the tumor cell, but also kill the normal cells. So the challenge uh, and where many of these new precision-targeted drugs like PI3 kinase inhibitors, for example, come in is because when you now look deeper at that biology, we now know that in the case of PI3 kinase, it's a very important signaling pathway that helps drive the proliferation and survival of tumor cells, the two fundamental features of a malignant cell. And we know that mutations in PI3 kinase, for example, are among the most common across all of cancer biology. So now if we can target those pathways that we know when dysregulated or when mutated account for that rapid cancer cell proliferation or the enhanced survival of a cancer cell, we can now more directly target the malignant cell. And that, in fact, is the theory behind many, many new classes of drugs, be it PI3 kinase inhibitors, be it BCL2-targeted drugs or BTK inhibitors. Um, They are essentially targeting very, very discrete but well-established dysregulated pathways found only in the malignant cell. And so if we're thinking about errors of chemotherapy or errors of anti-cancer therapy over the last 70 year, there's no doubt that that first error would be the error of chemotherapy. The second error might be the error of immunotherapy, drugs like monoclonal antibodies or antibody drug conjugates. And the third error, uh, which we've been in now for about a decade or so, would be the error of precision targeted therapies. And now we're entering sort of a fourth new era that's looking at combinations. How do we combine those drugs from the immunotherapy era with those drugs from the precision targeted therapy era in unique ways to achieve even better results than we got when we used those those drugs alone? Hence, the backbone of umbralisib and immunotherapy and umbralisib, a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And this is really going to be the future of chemotherapy is how now to leverage or figuring out how now to leverage these unique classes of drugs that are not being used in a necessarily chemotherapy predicated fashion. And so that is going to be the wave of of uh, treatment, and we're already seeing it across many types of lymphoma where these types of therapies have made chemotherapy far less uh, necessary than it has in the past. Why not take a, a step back and, you know, in vitro have healthy cells and have, uh, you know, cancerous B cells and then expose them to all kinds of stimuli and see what the differences are. Maybe instead of having to go for this particular pathway, there's a, an earlier step that would help you readily identify the differences in the cells so they could be targeted in other ways. Sure. And in essence, that's, that's, what, that's what's being done, right? So trying to understand, and usually that's done today at the level of gene expression profiling, trying to understand what genes are differentially expressed between normal cells and malignant cells. And it's that kind of approach that uh, you shared that, for example, gave rise to the notion 
that the PI3 kinase pathway in particular is one of those pathways that's commonly uh, dysregulated across all of cancer. And so think, you can think of it, uh, as, as you presented, as a sort of a subtractive analysis type of effort, right? Can you look at malignant cells and then compare them to their normal cellular counterparts, in this case, normal B cells, and find out what genes are differentially expressed? Now, when you do that, you're going to find that there are thousands of genes that are mutated or dysregulated in cancer relative to the normal cellular counterpart. So then the challenge becomes, well, which of those genes or what cadre of those genes are then the drivers in accounting for the behavior of that cancer cell? And so it can be a bit of a tedious process because even when you think you have outsmarted the biology and identified that gene, Rarely is it ever one gene. It's usually some network of genes that are dysregulated. The tumor cell can find ways to circumnavigate your therapeutic approaches. And so it's not uncommon that if I take those tumor cells that I have found to be dysregulated for PI3 kinase, and I start to expose them in the laboratory to, say, low concentrations of a PI3 kinase inhibitor, you will find that most of those cells will die early, but some may survive. And over time, those survivals of the survival of those cells that remain in a very classic Darwinian sort of fashion will begin to grow and divide. And you can now increase the concentration of that PI3 kinase inhibitor to the point now that that drug, which worked early on, no longer works because of acquired resistance. That acquired resistance in essence, comes from the cell's ability to bypass uh, what you are trying to block therapeutically with the drug. So it gets very complicated, but uh, trying to figure out how these networks talk uh, with each other is a major feature of systems biology, uh, which is now providing all sorts of very interesting, highly computational insights into uh, cancer cell behavior. Are you required to use standard of care along, alongside these therapies? Does it yeah. depend on the type of cancer? And how does that you know, confound your ability to help somebody or not? Yeah. So most of these trials, if we talk about, uh, and again, you know, the con- context here is everything. Uh, the indolent lymphomas are a very heterogeneous group of diseases, and there's really no consensus on the best strategy to use frontline or in uh, the relapse setting. So you'll find doctors do all sorts of things. So defining what a standard of care uh, is can be a bit of a moving target. And if you started a trial today and those results read out in five years, I guarantee you that the standard of care you use today won't be the standard of care used five years from now. So we're always using the retroscope to look back and say, well, why did you use this standard and not uh, today's standard? And, and it's because this is mo- the field is moving rapidly. But there are, of course, some diseases like the T-cell malignancies where there is absolutely no standard of care because nothing works. And that happens to be a setting where any experimental therapy, a clinical trial of some sort, is recommended even uh, with uh, the other conventionally available frontline treatments. So uh, depending upon the disease context, one can define standards. So if you're treating a disease like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, it would be a field standard to recommend that those patients have prior anthracycline-based therapy and a exposure to a prior anti-CD20. 
Likewise, if you were treating follicular lymphoma, it would be a field standard. It's the morally right thing to do to assure that patients have been exposed to prior CD20-based therapy, unless, of course, uh, you're using a CD20-based therapy in your regimen. So a lot of the standards are a bit of a moving target uh, and highly contextual with regard to the specific set of diseases that you're interested in studying. But I mean, if you're, are you able to do experimentation, let's say, without chemotherapy for some of these cancers in order to see if your immunotherapy would work? Yes. Or do you have to use chemotherapy first? And, yeah. you know, what if that reduces the efficacy? How is that moral? Yeah, exactly. So I think uh, we, we can talk about diseases like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. And back when I started out, use of chemotherapy in the form of drugs like fludarabine, mitoxantrone, cyclophosphamide, chlorambucil were all the standards of care. Those drugs are increasingly used less and less and less these days uh, as data, which has incrementally evolved and matured, demonstrated that many of these targeted therapies, BTK inhibitors or BCL2-targeted drugs or anti-CD20-based therapies, or now, uh, given results from the Unity CLL study with umbilisib and ublituximab, has shown that these combinations of precision-targeted drugs are superior to what we saw in the past with combination chemotherapy. What's even more intriguing about this sort of new era of precision-targeted therapy in CLL is the fact that Many subtypes of CLL that in the past we had labeled as very, very poor risk subtypes, so those that might have deletion of P53 or other cytogenetic aberrations, those diseases we knew back then did not respond to chemo. And one of the really astounding findings of many of these new targeted therapies is they seem to work just as well in those cases where you have a poor prognostic cytogenetic aberration as they do in those cases where you don't have that. So in the in the case of CLL, which really represents a very nice paradigm to think about how the field evolves, it doesn't evolve in quantum leaps, it evolves uh, at sometimes glacial small steps, uh, glacial pace and small steps. Now the field clearly has become convinced that many of these targeted drugs are not only replacing chemotherapy, they're producing survivals that are uh, better than what we saw with chemotherapy. And I think uh, over time, as our understanding of how these drugs work and the biology of the disease evolves, it's going to make chemotherapy in many of these types of lymphoid malignancies uh, obsolete. Yeah, the one uh, monoclonal antibody, what was it called? Ublituximab. It reminds me of like Bartholomew and the Ublek, you know, from Dr. Seuss. Whenever you say it, it's, it's funny. It sounds like Ublek, but I know it's not. Well, very good. Uh, Owen, what's the best place for people to find out more about the therapies that you're working on? Where can they go? Uh, you can go on the uh, web and read about uh, TG Therapeutics. Uh, we only spoke today about two of their specific drugs, uh, Umbralisib and Ublituximab, but there is a... Uh, really a fantastically interesting pipeline of drugs targeting CD47 and BTK and PD-L1 that we're now beginning to look at in combination with some of the more mature assets. So if you go to the website on TG, you'll see more about where we are with clinical trials, some of the recent approvals, and some 
uh, new emerging data with some of these new drugs in the pipeline that uh, look to really be very, very complementary to uh, some of the more mature uh, drugs that we've been developing to date. Very good. So, so people can go to tgtherapeutics.com. Yeah. And Owen, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.